When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. King Andrew I declared the cartoon hung at the Library of Congress in 1832. The caricatured figure depicted is draped in the fur-lined finery of a royal monarch. A bejeweled crown sits upon his head, scepter in hand, dandied shoes upon his feet. His frowning face is that of a disagreeable despot. Clutching a rolled sheet of paper marked Veto, the figure stands upon the torn parchment of the U.S. Constitution, symbolizing his abject disregard of governmental norms. But this is no European region dismissing democracy. Rather, this is a U.S. president being publicly parodied, accused of grossly abusing his powers, treading on ideals held dear by most Americans. He is Andrew Jackson, military hero, frontier icon, and from 1829 to 1837, two-term president of the United States. At once beloved and reviled by the American electorate, Jackson's divisive might and influence would be anything but cartoonish. His would become history, felt for centuries to come. There are no necessary evils in government. Its evils exist only in its abuses. If it would confine itself to equal protection, and as heaven does its reign, shower its favors alike on the high and low, the rich and the poor, it would be an unqualified blessing. Greetings, it's American History Hit, and I'm your host, Don Wildman. Welcome, one and all. Today, we continue our chronological journey through the long lineage of American presidents. New presidential episode every two weeks until we reach the present-day president, whoever he or she is by the time we finally get there. 
Today is number seven, President Andrew Jackson, elected and served two terms from 1829 to 1837. And if you're unfamiliar or vague about his time in office, well, I hope this will be a good and useful lesson for you. There is much about Andrew Jackson that still resonates across the centuries, still felt by many today. And depending on your general political stance, Andrew Jackson and what he represented, the forces he unleashed upon the land before and during his presidency, you'll either love or loathe the man. There's not much room in between. But this is a history show, and we're in the business of reporting events as objectively as we can. So I'm joined in this effort by author and educator, professor of history David Brown, who hails from Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. In 2022, his biography of Jackson, The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson, was published by Scribner. Hello, Professor Brown. David, it's nice to be with you. Good to be with you too, Tom. I think there's not another president of this era in American history so relevant to present-day discussions. Am I right? The themes of his presidency are heard everywhere today. He's an icon of the right. You know, today and uh, for a long time, Jackson's never really went away. He walked away from the presidency in the late 1830s, and historians beginning really in the late 19th century, and as you know, continuing to our own day, they continue to find relevance in Andrew Jackson. He's a protein figure. He's not like one of these uh, Gilded Age non-entities that kind of came and served and went away. Jackson is a richly symbolic figure, as you mentioned, for both the right and the left at different times. His reputation has oscillated. Jackson has been dead a long time. And so in a sense, that probably says more about succeeding generations and um, the vicissitudes of history and the needs that people have and how they read certain approaches and needs into the past. And they look for symbols. And for many people, Andrew Jackson is, is a symbol. Although what he is a symbol of, it's changed over time, to be sure. Jacksonian democracy is a term we'll discuss in some detail. But before we wander into the weeds, I wonder if you could explain that very generally. How does this political outlook in America apply? You mentioned that Jackson was the seventh president. The previous six, they'd all come from two states. Massachusetts and Virginia, which were considered East Coast, Atlantic-facing, aristocratic entities. People like Washington, Adams, Jefferson, they could become presidents. Jackson's the first chief executive to represent the West. He left um, the East Coast and he made his political career and his military career beyond the Appalachian Mountains in Tennessee. And so when he becomes president, he does so at a time in the late 1820s in which the West is, is rising, in which there are new Western states, there are new Western voters. Jackson could not have been president 10 years earlier because that Western constituency wasn't there. It is a constituency that sees itself as the bone and sinew, the backbone of the country. It sees itself as representing a form of pioneer democracy that people in the East Coast don't represent. And they see Andrew Jackson as being their champion in a sense, one of them. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense when you consider that Andrew Jackson was also a national hero because of the Battle of New Orleans, that he was president, so he was not exactly the common man. But he came to, to be recognized as a figure who did not embody East Coast elite ways, and he rather represented those politics, those economic aspirations of pioneer people in the West. That's why we call him a populist because he represented a rising, for its time, white man democracy in America. 
the, the issues generally, I guess, come to mind here for expanding suffrage, moving out from any kind of elitist group that is controlling things, expanding suffrage, meaning the voting rights and so forth, removing the advantages of the elite, as you say, empowering the common man, limiting the centralized government, more power given to states and, and local institutions, and a general distrust of financial institutions. Uh, this kind of turn back to an agrarian-based economy. I mean, those are a few of the boxes checked, right? That's right. Before there's Jacksonian democracy, there's Jeffersonian democracy. And Jeffersonian democracy checks some of those boxes as well, a suspicion of centralized power, emphasis on states' rights. But it was all done you know, I, I think with the Jeffersonians, still from that notion of a small elite being put in power by a very small portion or section of the electorate. And still this is a theme. Under yes. Jackson. Still a major theme in every presidential campaign these days. David, for our purposes in these episodes, we try to stick to the years in the White House. But in all cases, of course, it's necessary to recount a few significant events of his youth. For Jackson, he comes from Irish immigrant stock and ends up serving in the latter years of the American Revolution in South Carolina at the age of 13, as the British were attacking from the South, quite successfully so, as a matter of fact. He was a courier, along with his brother Robert, and they're eventually taken prisoner by the British and taken into miserable captivity. They both contract smallpox, released Andrew lives, Robert dies. His mother nurses Andrew Jackson back to health. She serves as a nurse on those British ships. She dies of cholera. I mention all of this to say that this young man has a traumatic experience very early in his life. His father had died earlier. He's totally orphaned by the age of 14. How do you think this might have shaped him psychologically? I mean, it seems obvious to me, of course. Well, you know, we talk about Jackson with states' rights, but there's also a very strong nationalist impulse in him. He was a national hero. He will face down the threat of states' rights during his presidency with the nullification controversy, and he'll challenge states' rights. And I think part of that comes from the experience of the American Revolution. He never really knew his father. His father died when he was an infant. He lost uh, the rest of his family, including his mother, during the American Revolution. So in a sense, he was 14. He was an orphan. He had some family he stayed with. They didn't enjoy it. They weren't close. He got away as quickly as he could. In a sense, I think that the country was his family. I think he identified with the United States in a very strong way. The American Revolution gave meaning to a lot of people in this country for a lot of reasons. And for Andrew Jackson, it wasn't just something about uh, an abstract idea of independence or freedom, but it was a cause that he identified with. It was a cause that, in a sense, never quite left him. Because when, you know, the, the War of 1812 comes, and, and there it is again, right? The United States and Great Britain, this, this ancient enemy, and we must saddle up and ride off to save the Republic again. And so this was something that was, I think, constant through Jackson's life. Jackson had two great abiding enemies, Native Americans and the British. He wasn't um, uncareful about this. When he was chief executive president of the United States, he was actually fairly adroit in his uh, relations and his foreign policy with Great Britain, but the country represented something to him. And that was aristocracy, which he thought was also replete on the American East Coast. And he thought that it was something that it belonged to the past, along with divine right kingships, along with priestcraft, and the American Revolution had freed the country. And in a sense, provided Jackson himself 
with a second's new family. Sure. It's fascinating. You know, you, even you get into the, the late 19th century, it's still a major theme about how American history treats the British. You know, that becomes this ongoing conversation because implied in that is how do we feel about aristocracy? How do we feel about tyranny? You know, the whole, the British are the symbol of all that which we have created a country to fight against, you know, in a new world that we're trying to find. It really matters that he was in the revolution, especially to those who vote for him, right? He's the last revolutionary president. That's right. And we see this, you know, moving forward. For example, McKinley, I think, is going to be the last Civil War soldier. And of course, you know, he's elected into the 20th century, you know, three plus decades on. Americans seem to have resonated to that, perhaps less so in more recent decades, because we don't have the same situation. We don't have the draft, for example. So we don't exactly have those five or six Vietnam War veterans. And we'll see what happens moving forward with mm. Gulf War veterans. McCain was the last one, really. When he first runs for president in the election of 1824, he's 57 years old. He's serving in the U.S. Congress for Tennessee, where he's come to reside outside of Nashville. He's become, as you said, a war hero in the Battle of New Orleans, War of 1812. He's been territorial governor of Florida. He's been a planter, made lots of money in cotton, large slaveholder, upwards of 150 enslaved folks at some point, made money in real estate, develops the city of Memphis on the Mississippi. I mean, he's got quite a resume by the time he is elected. He's a big American story, but he doesn't win the first election. The Electoral College cuts him out and John Quincy Adams beats him in a contingent election in the House. But Jackson comes close. He establishes himself as a viable candidate. He is viewed at that point as the ultimate outsider, isn't he? And that becomes a very valuable identity. It does become a valuable identity because there was this perception that um, politics was really becoming corrupt. Mm. that there was the need for reform. Jackson doesn't invent this, but Jackson does take advantage of it. And as I mentioned before, Jackson is richly symbolic. He can talk about the East Coast. He could talk about the corruption politics, and this is going to resonate. Uh, a few years before he was uh, elected, about a decade before, there was a financial panic in the country, and the nation had a national bank. The national bank had not faced such a crisis. It didn't operate very well. It should have put more money into the economy, and said it contracted loans in order to protect itself. The upshot is that there were lots of Americans, thousands, who lost their savings, who lost their homes, and they blamed the National Bank on this. Uh, this is not just going to set Jackson up for the bank war, but this is also going to set him up for the bank war to be able to make a strong argument that elite and Eastern controlled institutions are not really, not really nationalistic. They don't really help out all Americans. We were talking about the British earlier, when Jackson's going to go out for the second National Bank of the United States, he emphasizes time and again that there are British investors who are making money off of this bank when they're Americans who can't go to the bank and get a loan because all the money is going to corporate types and to those who are going to build internal improvements like bridges and canals and make a fortune off the people's money. Interesting that he would have this feeling about the British considering as a planter he would have depended on that market. I mean, he was selling a lot of cotton to the British, I would imagine. He was selling cotton a couple of different ways, though, because oftentimes plantationers would have to deal with factors. Sometimes the factors would be Americans, sometimes they would be British. But basically, a factor was, was the middleman. It was the person who would uh, help the planter to get the crop to market and then to negotiate the price. And, of course, the factor would get a percentage. And, and there were some, including people like Jefferson, who thought that, you know, the, the factors, they might be useful 
but they were greedy and they were taking too much a piece of the pie. Jackson is the transition. His presidency is the transition really from the Federalists' power in the government to the Democratic Republicans. And then he goes on to become the Democratic Party. Is it fair to be so bold about that, so broad about it? I would put Jefferson there. I would say that, you know, with the Jeffersonians in 1800, they defeat federalism in the House, in the Senate, and for the presidency. And, and federalism never really comes back as a strong force. And so I, I would say that there's an um, uh, interregnum there. And that is the period of, of the Jeffersonians. And, and the Jacksonians still portray themselves as Jeffersonians because Jefferson was popular. Everybody was a generic Jeffersonian. But where Jackson takes the party, he takes it to a place that's, that's more democratic, more Western. And so it's no longer really the Democratic Republicans under Jefferson or the Jeffersonians. It really is the Democratic Party under the Jacksonians. Right. And this lays out so much of the landscape politically for the whole 19th century, really, because you suddenly have this Democratic Party, which, you know, many people are confused about this. The Democrats of, of the 19th century were more like the Republicans of the 20 and 21st century. How do they drop the Republicans word off of that? And he becomes the Democrat. I, I've always been curious about that transition. Yeah. So uh, there's this kind of fuzzy period where it looked like political parties were just disappearing. In 1820, James Monroe, he runs for the presidency unopposed. And so he says, this is great. This is the era of, of you know, good feelings, as one Boston newspaper put it. And it looks like we're really beyond politics here, that it's just about the best person for the job. Well, that didn't hold. And in 1824, that the Jackson was running for the presidency. He got the most popular votes, the most electoral votes, but not a majority in the Electoral College, right? Why not? Well, because there were four candidates who were running. It was a politics of region, a Westerner, a couple Westerners, a Southerner, and a New Englander, John Quincy Adams. And so these candidates and their supporters, they understand that, that to not have any distinctions was not always helpful, that they wanted to make distinctions to say that their candidate represented something. And so it was at this time when the Jeffersonian coalition really begins to, to fracture. And there are those who will call themselves Democrats and those who will call themselves national Republicans. In other words, we're all Jeffersonians, but of different stripes. So the national Republicans were a little more conservative than the Democrats. But, you know, the 1824 election, it was so almost traumatic in certain ways, because there were lots of people who felt that Jackson had a kind of a moral hold on the office because he had more electoral and popular votes, but he didn't win. And I think that that's the thing that helps to break it and to promote clear partisan distinctions Andrew Jackson, one of his great lieutenants, was Martin Van Buren. And Martin Van Buren wrote a very interesting letter to a, um, uh, a newspaper editor for a, a Richmond paper. And he said, you know, the problem here in our country is that we don't have politics like we used to. When it was the Federalists and the Republicans, it was very visible and people could see exactly what the distinctions were. One of the things that Van Buren was reflecting upon was the Missouri Compromise or the Missouri Crisis in which the question was, this is in 1819, 1820, would Missouri be brought into the Union with or without slavery? It was highly contentious. Would slavery expand to the West? Van Buren was concerned that without partisanship, without one party saying, I'm for that, and another party saying, I'm against that, that, that the country would drift into paralysis. And so while previous politicians like Monroe had said, we need to get beyond politics. We just all need to be in this together. 
Van Buren thought, you know, if we can create political parties again, then we will not be fighting over slavery. We'll be fighting over other partisan issues. And he almost, the way he explained it was we, we would almost adopt partisan politics as a way to shield ourselves or to protect ourselves from a divisive argument, conversation leading to civil war over slavery. The very thing that uh, the factionalism that George Washington warned of in his goodbye address, you know, be careful of political parties. This will be what happens factionalizing the country. But that becomes a strategy that actually begins to build the very politics we have today. If you ever wonder where that all begins, it's really in this era that we're talking about. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Jackson enters the White House in a landslide victory four years later, 1928, and is finally inaugurated March 4th, 1829. First president, interestingly, to swear his oath at the U.S. Capitol, which I guess is rather symbolic there. He famously invites the public into the White House to celebrate. Bill Clinton did this, too, I remember, back in the early 90s. It never seems to be a great idea to give the American public an open invitation into government buildings, is it? Jackson barely got out, you know, without being crushed. There was, uh, you know, refreshments, cakes, um, lots of people came. And for some people, it, uh, it embodied what Jacksonism was supposed to be, which was a, uh, a people's movement. For the opposition, it also embodied what they thought Jackson was going to be, which was um, rank populism, uncontrolled. And um, who were these people to come into the people's house, the White House, and sit on the furniture, trump around in their muddy boots, and eat cake? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is probably best known, and let's just get right to this right away, because he is best known for his policies and treatment of Native American tribal societies in the South. As I mentioned, he spent years of his life waging battles against indigenous people, the Seminoles of Florida in particular. And he was among those who saw these people as unnecessary impediments to American westward expansion. 
states' rights and all that plays into this. They have the rights to, to, to figure this out on their own. Explain the consequences of the Indian Removal Act of 1830. This was most generally about moving tribes out of the lands east of the Mississippi. How did Jackson justify this outlook? Jackson justifies this by saying that this was going to be a voluntary removal. Uh, despite the, uh, the name of the act, uh, it did not empower the United States to remove the Native Americans. It empowered the United States to negotiate with the Native Americans. Now, we, would, we know that, th- that, that what these negotiations would amount to would be fraud, right? It barely passed in, in the House of Representatives by about five votes. It was very controversial for its time. So this isn't just sort of like reading contemporary sensibilities back to the past. This was very controversial in 1830 when the bill passed. It gives the federal government the right to provide um, money to negotiate and purchase Native American lands. What this uh, ends up doing is in one sense, not unique. Native American removal had been around as far as the European peoples have been concerned for centuries. This was now, I think, putting into play something that the federal government could not have done before because it lacks the power, the military to do so. But the United States in the 1830s was reaching a point where it could conduct such affairs and it could back it up, no matter what the law said, with a threat of force. And so this becomes, over the next few years, the Trail of Tears trauma, where it's uh, the Seminoles, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, uh, of course, the Cherokee. This goes into the Van Buren presidency. We talk about the Trail of Tears. That actually refers to the removal of the Cherokee under Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren. And of course, it doesn't end. Abraham Lincoln, you know, in the 1860s, is going to be part of this process. The wars don't end in any official sense until the 1890s. The, the, uh, the territory in the West, uh, Oklahoma, that was promised, much of this territory will be taken away after the Civil War period. And I think in a sense for the same reason, because the federal government possessed the power after the Civil War to essentially do what it wanted to do with these native communities. I want to be as objective as I possibly can in this situation, because, of course, we all see you even mentioned it just now. We see this as applying present sensibilities as genocide, as, you know, fraud and so forth. But you're saying that even at that time, they would have understood this, that there was a manipulation going on here or not? Yes, uh, there was considerable opposition. As I mentioned, it, it barely passed through the House of Representatives. You know, Jackson's reply, though, was that for those principally Northerners who were opposed to this, that they're being hypocritical in the sense that this was more of an issue for them because they had already removed most of their native peoples. And there was some truth to that. But um, the religious community in the North in particular was very upset about what Native American removal represented. They said that this was um, not just an attack on native peoples, but it also sort of exemplified, ratified the greed of whites who were moving into these areas. And, you know, there was a profound impact because most of these Native American communities, they practiced free labor. Not all, some did have slaves, but most practiced free labor. What you have with Indian removal, among other things, is um, the replacement of free labor, Native American labor, with enslaved labor. And so when we talk about the cotton belt or the black belt, moving through the deep south, this is gonna go through areas in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, into Texas, 
much of this territory uh, formerly, uh, obviously, um, you know, uh, under the province of Native Americans. Right. And in a way, we're, it's fair to say that we're seeing a future plan playing out, or at least the vision of that plan for the West, right? All that which will come later in those arguments about westward expansion and spreading of slavery. That's right. It's hard to separate the discussions of slavery and Native American removal. And, you know, again, in a sense, this is not new. It's just the scale has changed considerably. Yeah. It's very troubling to try to come to terms with this and come to some sort of truth about what happened. I am dying to do that before I pass from this earth to finally come down solidly on what really happened, whether it was as evil as we perceive it to be, or was it a mixed up, confused time full of pragmatism and just a sort of social engineering ideal of like, how are we going to create this country if it can be as great as it can be? And were all those, you know, more positive themes getting mixed up in the bag. But you're suggesting that at the time there was a cognizant idea of these people just being less than human and we need to move them off so we can do what we want to do. Can it be as ugly as that? Certainly it can. And, you know, this doesn't exactly go away. In the late 19th century, social Darwinism will become a very, you know, strong and influential idea in this country. You know, the notion, the idea that some are just, you know, more capable and therefore more fit. And um, we'll see this applied no longer to Native Americans because it's not really necessary at this time. But it will be applied to Asians who come into the country. And it will be applied oftentimes to Catholics and to Jewish, Slavic peoples who, who come in in a very strong immigration between, say, the 1890s and up to the First World War. And so this, this, this idea, you know, is, 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 is it thought out? It's not so much the notion that people get together in a room and come up with a, um, a plan to do this. It's more like a mentality. There's a strong desire for an outcome. And how does one produce that outcome? Well, at the same time, viewing oneself as being in the right and not trying to hurt people or harm people. And then from that, we see things like removal policies, ethnic cleansing, ideas like social Darwinism, you know, these ideas that would be applied you know, towards, say, Native Americans in the um, 1820s and 30s as impediments to progress. We'll see the same thing, the same ideas applied, say, to, to Mexicans in the 1830s and 40s to explain why it's okay to have a revolution in Texas and then to, to go to war with Mexico, which is really a war of choice. Really the difficult themes of American history. But we're concentrating on the presidency, so we must move on to other themes. Jackson, as mentioned, an outsider president, man of the people, nationalist through and through. But it's a nation of common men he believes in. This brings him into stark conflict, as mentioned, with the elites of federal government. We today call them the inside the beltway folks, but it's the same idea. Jackson is that early fork in the road of American political identity. And for him, the object of great disdain is the National Bank. Can you explain how this works, that he basically vetoes the, the renewal of the second National Bank, correct? Yeah, the bank was always controversial. There were two banks in the early republic. The first National Bank came about during Washington's administration. There was the question, was it legal? Was it constitutional? Alexander Hamilton, Secretary of the Treasury, who proposed it, he said it was Jefferson, who was also in the, uh, the cabinet, Secretary of the State, said it wasn't. Washington thought about it, said, I think it is. Let's go with this. It had a 20-year charter. When federalism collapses as a political force, the Jeffersonians come to power. 
they allow its, its charter to lapse. And so there's no national bank. What there is, is there's the War of 1812, and the Jeffersonians learn it's very difficult to fight a war, a major war, without a national banking structure. So it's actually the Jeffersonians who create the second national bank in the United States. The Supreme Court weighed in in 1819 and said, yes, the bank is constitutional. Jackson never believed that the bank was constitutional. Some people argue that there was also for Jackson a personal dimension to his animosity towards the bank because when he was a younger man, he had lost considerable funds in a speculative scheme and, and he, he blamed the banking structure for this. But I think primarily Jackson believed that the bank was an elite institution, that it helped out a small number of Americans, the well-to-do, to get even richer, that it might be true that the bank did some good in that it provided loans so that people could build bridges and canals and factories. There would be a trickle-down effect. But Jackson said it doesn't help all Americans, and it is not literally stated that Congress has the power to do this in the U.S. Constitution. And, and, and so when the bank is uh, you know, coming up for, for recharter, it passes through Congress. It passed through a Jacksonian majority in Congress, but Jackson vetoed it. And when a lot of these Democrats saw the way that Jackson came down this issue, they did not oppose him. It was also an election year, and Jackson was running for re-election. So it wasn't very likely that people in his own party were going to try to override his veto. And so they let it pass. They let it go. And um, the bank went out of existence, but not exactly because, you know, during the American Civil War, there was an effort because the cost of war was so great to create a different banking structure that provided the resources. It wasn't permanent. And it's not really until 1913, I think, with the founding of the Federal Reserve, that we have a system which, in some respects, actually looks a bit like the first and second national banks of the United States. And, and, and uh, yeah, I think one of the great ironies is that there's a lot of branches of this Federal Reserve Bank, including one in Nashville. And so I think from the bank, you could actually see a statue of Andrew Jackson in front of the state house. These sort of two mortal enemies. Yes, exactly. And still that same tension, you know, between populists and the Fed, you know, that's always used as a great symbol. Again, one of these threads from the Jacksonian years through to today that is so, so relevant still. How much is Jackson the original version of this kind of conservative? I mean, we hear so much in, in the far right of today's GOP in Trump's presidency about gutting the federal framework of American life. Is he the beginning of this or are we picking up an already established theme? I mean, Aaron Burr, for one thing, was a big voice in this realm, right? Yeah, uh, I think you're right. I think there's an antecedent. Jefferson, for example said, uh, we must get rid of the federal debt. We must pare back the budget. We cut our foreign policy presence to three ambassadors around the world. There was a, a U.S. ambassador in Madrid, one in Paris, and one in Great Britain. That's all. The military budget was cut considerably. And Jefferson said, there are too many elitists, by which he meant federalists, in the federal government. And so what we must do, appointments. So what we must do is we must remove some of these. So in the name of ideological purity, Jefferson was actually able to begin to put in his own people. This was partisanship, this was party building. Jackson will do something similar when he becomes chief executive. And so there is some precedence for this. I think where Jackson is more original, and this is why I call my book, The First Populist, 
because it's hard to take Jefferson seriously as a populist because he was such a such an aristocrat. Jackson, despite being a frontier nabob, a frontier aristocrat, he really did, I think, speak to the concerns of white men of all classes in a way that no prior president had. Right. That system of putting in your own becomes known as the spoil system. And under Jackson, it's employed. The idea being that this bureaucracy that's built, this sort of fortress of federalism, needs to be torn down every time a new president comes in. And by doing so, you've sort of refreshed the government and served the needs of the people who had voted this president in. How long does that spoil system continue after Jackson? Well, some would say it continues to this day. That's right. Hit sort of a, a high point or maybe a low point in the late 19th century, when um, there was a faction within the Republican Party that was really fighting against this notion of, of spoils. And it actually bred kind of a political movement known as the Mugwumps. And in 1884, they said, if our party, if the Republican Party doesn't try to move away from the spoil system politics, we will leave the party for this election. Long story short, Republicans had dominated presidential elections ever since the Civil War. They lose in 1884, in large part because they lost the state of New York by under 2,000 votes in the presidential election. Presumably, the mugwumps counted for more than 2,000 votes in the state of New York. So I think you could say that mugwumpery or this clash about partisanship within the parties, it probably cost the Republicans the national election of 1884. Wow, interesting. There's so many smaller movements in American politics, especially in the 19th century. I mean, you have the know-nothings, you have all these different groups that are so fascinating, shows unto themselves. One of the great ironies during his uh, presidency is that he ends up in a conflict with South Carolina over the fact that South Carolina doesn't want to have a federal tariff that's hurting their own interests. And this seems so symbolic to me and so strangely ironic, really, that Andrew Jackson ends up fighting for federalism in the face of this state that will, in the future, become such a big part of this issue, you know, of states' rights. But he wins, right? He did win. South Carolina said that it was being harmed by a federal tariff. Not unlike Jackson's argument about the bank, South Carolina says that there's nothing explicit in the Constitution that allows the um, federal government to apply a tariff. Jackson said it is crazy if we allow states to willy-nilly interpret the Constitution as they want to interpret the Constitution. He says the first thing that will happen if we allow South Carolina to nullify a federal law is that then Illinois is going to say, well, you know, we don't, we don't really want to pay the tariff either. And so what's going to happen is that you're going to have the country collapse. So Jackson certainly had a certain respect for states' rights. But to go back to what we were talking about earlier with the uh, uh, American Revolution, that was also a nation-building experience for Jackson, one exemplified during the War of 1812. He was a proud officer in the United States Army. He was leading the United States government, and he was uh, shrewd and savvy. This is, I think, underplayed legal mind, and he could see exactly where um, something like nullification was heading for. It was going to head towards disunion. Yeah, exactly. As I mentioned in the opening, there is such an inherent dichotomy to Andrew Jackson. For present-day cancel culture, there's hardly a debate. He's just evil, a symbol of all that will lead us to four years of civil war eventually. For hardcore conservatives, he's great. Exactly what's required to boldly preserve American freedom. Never mind all those enslaved folks harvesting his cotton, but that's another subject. 
one aspect of his presidency that gets high marks on both sides is that he pays off the national debt during his or a, a large part of it during his terms. He's a stern money manager. Yet somehow the nation is on shaky ground economically at the end of his years in the White House. Why is that? Uh, I think it's the residue of the bank war. The bank goes out of existence. And this is followed up by a financial panic. That's the language of the day. We might they call it a really deep recession or maybe even a depression. Jackson didn't count on the fact that the bank served as a useful break for excessive speculation on the part of smaller banks, mom and pop banks. And so when the national bank goes out of existence and these smaller banks are no longer being regulated, they're looking to make as much money as they can. And so they, they overlend and it helps to create a land and speculative bubble. And this bubble bursts in 1837. And it really costs, I think, Jackson's successor, handpicked successor, Martin Van Buren, the presidency. Because when he runs for re-election in 1840, the economy still hasn't really recovered. And the bank war and Van Buren's response to it are seen as the culprits. Wow. All right. We have covered a lot of distance here. I warned you. It's a lot of stuff to talk about in these presidencies. But So let me summarize. Andrew Jackson leaves office with us facing big challenges. Economy's not in great shape. Crisis looming. There's political strife brewing, a civil war in two short decades. Native American tribal relations are at a nadir. And the issue of slavery's expansion into the West is heating up. At the heart of all of this is the federal role in regulating economic policy between the states. And all this, as you say, Martin Van Buren, number eight, will inherit. And we'll cover that in two weeks' times. Don't miss it. David Brown, it is an honor to talk to you. Your book, The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson, is only one of several books, seven, as a matter of fact, that you've authored, including one that is a favorite of mine, Paradise Lost, about F. Scott Fitzgerald. There's Henry Adams. There's fascinating books to check out. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a real privilege. Thank you, Don. It was great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of American History Hit. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.